Enrollment is open for Thomas's upcoming six-session live online course, Navigating the Levels of Trauma Healing. Explore how to work with the impacts of collective crises and challenges and learn tools to manage anxiety, overwhelm, and nervous system dysregulation during times of accelerated change and disruption. In this all-new curriculum, Thomas and expert guest speakers will engage in ecosystemic practices to collectively explore our resilience, agency, and capacity to stay present and find deeper meaning. Click the link in our show notes to learn more and enroll. Or go to www.navigatingthelevelsoftrauma.com. Welcome to Point of Relation with Thomas Hubel, a podcast that illuminates the path to collective healing at the intersection of science and mysticism. In his conversations with visionaries, innovators, artists, and healers, Thomas invites guests into a relational experience that allows inspiration and innovation to emerge. This is The Point of Relation. The following interview was recorded during a previous Collective Trauma Summit, an online gathering convened annually by Thomas Hubel to share ideas and inspire action for healing, individual, ancestral, and collective trauma. Visit CollectiveTraumaSummit.com to listen to featured talks from our most recent summit and sign up to be the first to know when the next summit is announced. Prentice Hemphill is a writer, embodiment facilitator, political organizer, and a therapist. They are a founder and director of the Embodiment Institute and the Black Embodiment Initiative, and the host of the acclaimed podcast, Finding Our Way. They have taught embodiment leadership and generative somatics with Black organizing for leadership and dignity, and served as the healing justice director of Black Lives Matter Global Network from 2016 to 2019. Their work and writing have appeared in the New York Times and the Huffington Post. Hello and welcome. My name is Thomas Hubel, and I'm the convener of the Collective Trauma Summit 2022 again. And I'm very delighted to sit here with Prentice Hemphill. Prentice, a very warm welcome to our summit here. Thank you so much, Thomas. It's really great to be with you. Mm, yeah, it's great. I felt immediately when you came on, I felt a very lovely resonance. And I think that we have some shared passions, at least that's uh, what's my feeling. Like I always love to get a little bit to get into your stream, like our background and what made you, what shaped you. You know, there is calling, there are life circumstances, there are traumatizations that shape our way to who we become. And uh, how we flourish. So maybe you want to tell us a little bit what what shaped you into what you're doing today, and maybe also after that, what's your leading edge? Where, where are you excited right now in mm. in work? Thanks for um, the invitation to begin there. Sometimes they get skipped over. I I think what's important to understand about my shaping is that I'm from the Southern United States and from. Uh, a, a town in Texas. I didn't grow up in a city. I grew up in a town, like prairie land expanse, where people still rode horses sometimes down the street, um, that kind of place. And it deeply shaped me. I think the history of the South can feel very dense. It's very visceral, I think. Um, and that pressure and presence of history was... You know, it's something you have to contend with in a way early on. There's a there's a point where it becomes: Do I internalize these messages that I'm receiving, or do I try to try a more difficult path, being awake to what is happening? Um, so I, I feel really clear how that shaped me and where those choice points were in my life. And I also feel really shaped by um, Black Southern uh, spiritual traditions that I think are a mix of. Christianity and African spiritual traditions, but I grew up in churches where people shouted and uh, released and our bodies were very much in the practice of um, connecting to God. It was 
very musical, very rhythmic, very active. So uh-huh. I grew up there and that, you know, I say early on, I, I knew something about what a body could do. And I knew it from that spiritual tradition. Um, I wasn't afraid in that context of moving, of letting go, of reaching my hands up, you know, of reverence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I feel deeply shaped by that tradition. And I, you know, I experienced trauma um, growing up. There was violence in our home um, that, you know, was deeply shaping for me. And there was also a lot of laughter and love. And it was just that mix, that swirl of things. And it was very clear to me early on that the experiences that my parents had, that we had, in the world, especially around racism or for me around gender and race, that it showed up in our household, that that was happening to us in other places and it showed up between us. I was really clear about that in a way that it didn't kind of originate with my parent, Um, though, you know, obviously still we enact things, but I could tell that there were threads elsewhere in the world. Um, when I got older, uh, I got really interested in politics and political organizing in particular. And um, it was a way for me to not only kind of accept that things were going to be this way always, that these pow- these entrenched historical power dynamics would remain. So that there was something we could do about it through collective action. And so political organizing was really an important way for me to reclaim my agency and become a kind of actor in the world. Um, But getting deeply into movement work, you know, I've been doing, there's a lot of different, there's many paths in one. I mean, I think that's part of my personality is I'm like, I was doing political organizing and also studying therapy and somatics at the same time. Um, But holding those um, worlds or being in those worlds, I could see how much they didn't speak to one another how so many of the organizers that I knew were not interested in thinking about healing or were not interested in understanding the way trauma or individual trauma or experiences of historical generational trauma were impacting them or the people around them. Um, It became very analytical in some ways, how people went about changing the world, so to speak. Um, And at the same time, I was in therapy context and it there wasn't that capacity to look at the systemic. It was very individual. Um, so I've been working kind of in black movement in particular, but movement, social movements broadly, thinking about how we can um, address individual and collective trauma, how we can live into the values that we have, how they can actually become embodied, um, and how we can um, tap into the kind of resilience and creativity that I think is necessary for envisioning uh, a way through these kind of catastrophes and crises that we face. So um, that's where the bulk of my work has been. Mm-hmm. Wow, beautiful. Like immediately, I have many, many questions come up and I feel you and listen uh, as you speak. One is, you said something very interesting. You said, either I internalize or I am awake. Yeah, And that sounds like a simple sentence, but I would love you to speak to that sentence a bit because I think that's a very interesting, a very powerful sentence that might be easily skipped over because it holds a lot of uh, power. So maybe you can speak what that means or how does yeah. one stay awake or internalize or have a choice. Yeah, it feels like a really, I can remember the time. And I wonder if it's true for other people that are kind of faced with that dilemma of, there's a a story that's really heavy in a place about who has power and who doesn't, who's worthy and who's not, who's human and who's not. There's a story that's reinforced every time you turn the television on or every time you walk down the street. There's a there's a story that is trying to be told through your body, essentially. And for me, I think it was probably when I was about 11, it felt like, oh, I have to there's a way that I can almost seek a kind of comfort or it's almost a kind of sanity if I accept this lie into my body. If I let the body, if I let the lie take root in me, 
that I'm subhuman in some way or undeserving in some way. I can let that root in me and the world will make sense and I'll know how to navigate it. I'll know where I can go and where I can't go if I let that root in me. Um, or there's a more challenging path <laughs> and a more kind of maddening path in a way of, um, or at least immediately that's what it felt like, of not allowing the lie to take root and to remain myself awake, alive, impactable, sensitive and that's the path I chose it felt for me and I'm using God in a really expansive way for me but I had to make a a decision at that point I said well God made me or I was created so the the world of human beings and the stories we tell about power and these dynamics is a imposed narrative on me but for me it was realizing that there were these stories that we lived in that were human created with a human intention that they it was a story about power and resources and i somehow could tap into something that felt like a deeper or higher knowing which is that god the an expansive god created me put me here here i am and there was nothing in that relationship that said that I wasn't enough or I wasn't, I didn't belong here. In fact, everything said I belonged here because I existed here. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so when I tapped into that, it that was my kind of resource, my source for saying, you know, I can remain sensitive, I can remain present because I know I, I feel connected to that source as opposed to trying to source from this really flimsy story that seemed to permeate everything um, that had to be reinforced constantly through violence and through lies. I was like, I, I, I'm going to source something else in order to stay here. Though I had to grieve. You know, there's a lot of grief in that too when you realize mm -hmm. what is. Mm -hmm. I think that's really amazing. I mean, for me, like it touches me very much when you what you said right now in this. Like, first of all, not to let a lie take roots in my body. That's a very powerful sentence. I mean, as an eleven-year-old, to have a choice to say either I I choose belonging to a distorted system that gives me some comfort, or I choose wakefulness and not let that root, but then I need to be awake moment to moment to be in life and make moment to moment to moment be in the choice. That's very powerful. I love it. It's it's amazing. It's really lovely. And then also, like I source myself from something that's more universal that is not yet corrupted by that human-made system over thousands of years. And and I think that that's, that these are two very powerful uh, I don't know things you said that really reached me. Also, that how that 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 inner sourcing from the from God or like a and a universal source is uh, your power outlet. In mind that helps us to stay aligned in life when the belonging doesn't give us that sourcing because we don't want to belong to like a distorted system. That's we right. want to be wakeful. That's pretty amazing. That's great. Yeah. Th I mean, thank you for that. I, I also will say that I feel I felt really resourced by my ancestors and tradition in that way, too, that, um, you know, I often think about the very simple song that we always sang growing up, which is this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. And it sounds like a simple children's song. But as I got older, I thought, wow, think about what my ancestors infused into that song. A very simple powerful message about staying connected to that source and there were all kinds of songs like that or ways of moving or dancing that i felt like reinforced a very simple stay connected to that source because this world is full of a lot of <laughs> a lot of distortions um but i would always sing that song i'm gonna let it shine you know all through the night i'm gonna let it shine it's just uh, the song is about in all of these conditions i'm gonna remain connected to that light source inside of me. And so 
um, yeah, I felt like I came from a lineage and a, I could map that, how people stay connected to that light, even in these really challenging moments. Um, yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. And so you said something else before. There's a second part of your first sharing that I want to come back to. You said there was a, some reenactment in your family system, but you could feel the roots or the streams coming from somewhere. Like, can you speak to this? This sounds very interesting to me. Yeah, I feel excited to talk to you about it because I know a lot of your work does the same mapping. You know, I was writing recently, I'm working on a book right now kind of about this, and I was saying that I could really track that if my dad got fired from his job, that the way it worked, and I think the way power can sometimes work too, is that he wasn't able to express his frustration or feeling, I'll, I'll kind of back it up a little bit. You know, my dad, black man, grew up in the South, very smart, very charming man, very few opportunities, a lot of closed doors for him. Um, and I think his idea of what would be possible to him as a man and what was reality were very, very different. And so in that gap was this buildup of frustration and anger, rage, and he couldn't act that rage out on the people with more power than him. I mean, he could, but there would be great consequence. We know the consequences of violence and, you know, incarceration, all of these consequences. So instead, the outlet that he had was on those that were close to him that were less likely to leave him and who had less power. And that was my mother, and that was his kids, or it, it, it moved along that line. And so I could understand when things would be enacted on us. I'm not the, this is not from our relationship. This didn't emerge from our relationship. It comes from somewhere else, but it, because he was afraid of or wanted to avoid the consequences and because they would have killed him, um, he couldn't act it out in the places really where he belonged. He had to act it out on folks with less power. And so then we absorbed that. And, you know, I'm a parent um, now. This year I became a parent. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot about, you know, my child and my father was really focused on being seen, being valued as a, as a man in the society. And sometimes he'd look at me and I would feel that that was the preoccupation, that he couldn't see me fully because that was inside of him, running inside of him. And so I learned to kind of pull back. You know, I didn't expect much from his gaze because he, there was something else happening. But when I had a child and she looked at me and it was just pure presence, my habit, the habit energy I have is a pull away a bit. That's what I'm used to doing. But I realized in order to interrupt actually the generational pattern and to figure out how to be present to her looking, to her eyes, and that actually if I pulled away, I would let this story, let this pain continue. But if I figured out how to show up to her, to her looking, something else was possible for our lineage, you know. Mm -hmm. That's also pretty amazing. Like also that, first of all, I love your like the wakefulness that you described that uh, was already in you from the beginning, like how you observe things that are really strong. And I think you weren't asleep to them, but you recognize them. That's really strong. And also that you see the repetition compulsion of the same transgenerational issue. And you have the awareness of step-by-step step reversing it or integrating it or however we call it. That's that's powerful. And congratulations. Thank you. Being a parent. It's lovely. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So, but maybe this leads us already into, because I deeply like see every day in my work and, um, and see the, 
high importance of two things. And I'm curious how you look at that. One is that trauma work needs to go through the body. That's not something we do through reflecting mental I mean, that's a part of it, but it, eventually everything needs to restore itself or integrate itself through the body. And so that's my first question. I know you're very deep into somatic therapy embodiment, so maybe you can speak a bit to how that works in the body or how you experience that. And the second part is that I think we are within, that's why we also do call this the Collective Trauma Summit, because there are systemic patterns that are so kind of pandemic that most of us are bought into some of it at least because it's so we it's thousands of years of trauma that all the generations have been born into in various ways and and one way is that the sense of separation and that we see an individual separate from the collective i mean everybody who stops breathing for more than 3 minutes will see how interdependence works but but still the kind of and many schools of thought are actually within that kind of limitation of thinking life in a separate way. Like as an individual can be seen separately or even therapy works on a separate individual versus an interdependence that's always there, a fluidity between the I and the we or the I and the all or however we want to see it. And I'm curious about both of it, like embodiment and um, individual collective interdependence and how that's important in your work. I love that. Um, that's another thing I was really excited to talk to you about in particular. Um, what do I want to say about somatics and embodiment? There's, gosh, there's so much. Um, we learn through our bodies. We remember in our bodies. And I think the idea that we could engage healing work without our bodies, <laughs> or the very still bodies that you know don't feel or move or... Um, I think it's very much a part of the same um, tangle we're in. It's uh, the logic that the mind can do something and then just tell the body about it later, that it can just figure it out without relationship to feeling or all the unruly emotions of the body. I think it's part of the it's part of the conundrum. It's part of what lays the foundation for a lot of forms of dominance and objectification, I think. Um, mind over the body, I can just think about it, tell the body to do it and that should work. Um, this is nothing but flesh that I control through the control center of my you know, brain. Um, it, it really sets the foundation, I think, for a lot of turning the world into objects, turning nature into objects, turning our bodies into objects, turning you know, certain people into objects. And um, I think fundamentally it just, like you said, when we're really trying to transform something and especially working with our nervous systems to recalibrate what's happening in there, it means that our bodies not only have to be involved, it's the site at which the transformation occurs. And your brain is also in your body, turns out. So it's part of <laughs> it's actually like <laughs> reactivating the conversation between all of the elements of your nervous system and your body to bring those into conversation and collaboration, like you were saying. Um, I think is really what it's the promise of embodiment and somatics. So when I work with clients, it's about uh, feeling allowing sensations to come back online to kind of interrupt this sense that we are robots or should be machine, but that we're actually feeling beings and that's there's actually wisdom in there. Um, that there's stories inside of our body and some of them want completion. Some of them want expression. Um, and there's also capacities in our body that we may have to um, reawaken. There are ways of what traumatic experiences can do is contract certain parts of our body. So we may have to reawaken those places in our body and see then what we can feel when other parts of our bodies come online. There's so much in there, but I think that's really the potential 
of um, somatics and embodiment is to understand ourselves, to integrate what we've experienced, and also to reawaken parts of ourselves that um, may have gone dormant or be in a kind of uh, contraction that's sucking a lot of our energy and may be able to open that up. Now, in terms of the embodiment and related to the collective, you know, through my work, a lot of what I say is that relationship is really what we're talking about. So even as you're talking about integrating parts of our body, that's actually, your arm is in relationship to your chest. <laughs> your torso is in relationship to your lower body. We are actually not just biceps and pecs and, you know, we're, there's a relationship in how you move. And sometimes we bypass certain aspects because we don't want to feel it. But relationship is at the core. Trauma interrupts relationship in our own body and also with other beings, other human beings, other beings in our ecosystem. Trauma interrupts that relationship. And so um, in, with our organization, the Embodiment Institute, we are talking about how do we expand our field and feeling so that we can be aware of the web of relationship that we're already embedded in and be able to feel into that. Um, that's so much of what is, and I, I'm going to say broken, but I wish I had a better word. Um, and as someone who was trained as a therapist, we often think about individual distress as a kind of indicator of well-being. And I think that there's something about our ability to be in relationship with our ecosystem, with other creatures with other human beings, it actually tells us a lot about well-being. It's not just my individual distress, it's capacity for relationship too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Because I love what you said about the mind over the body, like because I also see this as one of the pandemic symptoms is that uh, the, the dissociated mind from nature and then and then we take all kinds of decisions, but the world is actually a 2D poster. Because if it can't be experienced through the body, which is three-dimensional, has edges, has is tangible, it's it's a, it's I see you as a two-dimensional uh, poster, and that that that's very dangerous. Yeah, I think that's where all the the pain happens because the relationship is lost. It's beautiful. So I want just to highlight that I think that that's a very important point also that leads to our, our ecological crisis also and to many other social and cultural issues. When we look at the uh, current therapy models, and I, I, I heard you uh, talk about disrupting some of the conventional ways of therapy. Maybe you want to say a little bit about that first, and then I, I'll come back to the collective for a moment. Yeah. I mean, I say that to be, you know, I like to be a little agitational sometimes. <laughs> um, and I think it's really all the things that we are starting to talk about, about the individual and collective. Um, I think the way, you know, I think the language I use is disrupting the wellness industry, because I really think about, you know, there's this massive industry, fastest growing multi-billion dollar industry that is about, you know, there's books and movies and retreats and all of these things. And, um, I think all of that is important. However, it's growing exponentially as an industry because our distress and and the kind of catastrophes and crises we face are growing. And the logic, I think, of the wellness and kind of therapeutic industries in this moment has a really deep individualism inside of it. And I think that it's important to disrupt that because that's that's how we get here and there's actually not just an individual solution that will relieve your distress mm -hmm. and i think that obscures our inner connectivity um to even imagine that that's so so when i say that it's mostly that i want it to be less possible for us to think that we can have individual solutions to real collective and global crises i, I want us to start thinking systemically. And I think that's what wellness and therapy hasn't been able to do really well is think on in a systems way. But I think that's where 
right action is in this moment, obviously in the individual, but also in being able to think um, systemically. So I think uh, I want to disrupt that. And I think I also want to disrupt a kind of um, fear of talking about how power has shaped our embodiment and shaped how we create things where like how belonging operates in the spaces that we create. Um, I want that to be disrupted a bit because where we are currently, where some of us might feel settled might not be, it's almost like, how do I say this? If you come up in a world where your nervous system is settled by only being with people like you, that is, it indicates that there's something about belonging, I think, that has to be healed, <laughs> has to be addressed. And I think that's where we are. We have to trouble that water a bit and talk about how has power actually shaped where your body is comfortable and where does your body get agitated and look into that and... um allow what we find there to really transform us. So that's what I'm excited about. It's a loving disruption, um, but yeah, for the sake of the collective. Yeah, I love that. I love that because I think you're speaking to that in a, dis I call it sometimes in a distortion of trauma. I mean, trauma creates like, what I often call is looking at our society, we see emergent relational updating and uh, growing processes. But then I think sometimes we look at society and it looks like the same and it's repetitive, it's disrelated, it's non-emergent, it doesn't have any updates, it's just repeating itself. It's actually stuck in the past. That's, That's right. right. That's right. And, and we look at this and we call all of it society. And I would say, no, let, let, let's look, this is not the same. Yeah. And we have way too little collective awareness of those repetitive processes. And then we argue with the hostage in time instead of taking care of its roots in order to release that energy. And and that creates societal structures that are actually frozen and they, they don't evolve. And that creates a lot of tension with the part that is moving. So there, And that tension is really painful or suffering. And I would love you to speak a bit more to that, maybe how you experience that. So that's how like, I would describe it, but I'm sure you have your own experience of that. And also how, how do you see that we as like collective wakefulness, like when we support each other in networks or like, how can we make a step there to help liberate that kind of collectively, that collective permafrost that holds a lot of energy. Like you said before, in the body, if if there is a contraction that holds a lot of energy, it affects the individual. So if we like, look at the same principle, maybe in a bit of a different adaptation in the collective, there's a lot of energy stuck in this collective unconscious structures. How can we translate maybe a bit of what we learned individually into like a more collective somatic uh, release work, if maybe if that makes sense, maybe you can speak in uh, to that if that makes somehow sense to you. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, but it it feels like something I want to um, talk about for a day someday. <laughs> <laughs> so Do we need to continue later. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I really love that image of the kind of institutions and structures that get frozen in time, um, that's really helpful for me. I often think about what it takes to keep something frozen, you know, because that's, that's, yeah, I feel like that's what I work with a lot and that's what I feel a lot is what it takes actually um, to keep it frozen. Um, I think the things that I want to say, and there's so much there, but what I want to say to that is we come to embody the systems that we are embedded in. We learn how to recreate them. We learn how to build them. We learn how to act them out in our interpersonal relationships. We know how to impose those structures and logics on our own bodies. I think about it as like 
that logic that has risen to the level of the systemic and the structural is also, it's just worming its way through everything and through us. And so a lot of what I'm trying to explore right now is, well, one, how do we meet in a kind of field of presence, if that's possible? How do we, it's almost like the the past has this hold on us that makes it almost impossible to meet <laughs> the same place <laughs> in a way. Because uh, we're acting it out, we're trying to, we're embodying it, we're trying to make sense in this world, kind of like what we're talking about at the top. And I'm really curious about how, like you and I, how groups of people can meet in a place, more or less, in a field. Um, and I think that holds a lot of possibility. I think one of the things I feel really strongly in the U.S., which is where I've always lived, um, is that this story that we've held about who we are and who all the different characters are in this in this play, it's expired. It's, <laughs> it's obviously over. <laughs> And yet, people don't have a good story about who they are and a fear of changing and transforming. So when you're working, I'm sure you've experienced this, when you're working with someone who's, you know, almost, they've gotten to the edge where they're like, oh, okay, this thing I'm holding on to, this element of my trauma that I'm holding on to, I can see all around it now. I can feel all around it. But if I let it go, who am I? If I let it go, who do I become? I'm afraid of the unknown. And therefore, I'm unwilling to change. And I think we're very much at that point in a lot of places. We've held on so tightly to these stories and these structures and these dynamics and these identities that we actually, it's not even that they make sense or don't make sense. It's that I actually am afraid of who I might need to become and what I might need to feel, the kind of grief and relatedness and responsibility and um, accountability that I might need to feel. I'm not sure if I can bear it. And so I'd rather stay entrenched in the kind of denial and this the persistence of this story about who I am or who I might be. Um, but I think it's, I think that it's almost like getting good at change or getting willing to change or facing into the unknown, these existential questions and having the rituals. I mean, I think that's the foundation when we talk about collective transformation is having the kind of rituals that can bring our bodies into the same place and allow us to feel all of what is. Um, and we just don't have enough of those spaces. We don't have enough of those practices anymore, but also together across culture and history that allow us to meet each other in that place. So um, that's what I'm, I'm doing a lot of study right now around ritual and trying to create because culture is a living thing. You know, we always have to be creating inside of it. And so I'm in this question of what are the rituals that can move us mm -hmm. through the grief, through the accountability What's the rhythm of it? Who holds it and how? Because um, I don't think there's another way. And I don't think it's it's an intellectual thing. I mean, I can kind of point to it. I think we have to do a thing together. No, mm, yeah, that's powerful. I, I'll come back to that in a moment. I think that's really interesting. What are the rituals that we um, energize today that help us in this level of evolution uh, for and the other thing I want to highlight is something I think that is very essential for trauma work. And that's why I want to underline what you said, that, the, that how often our mind is holding a story because we defend ourselves against the intensity of our experience in our bodies and emotions. And as long as we stay entangled in that story, that we know that that helps us. So maybe at the beginning it's to see, yeah, there's an intelligence in that helping us to dive deeper. But every change process that brings up fear means there's a lot of fear stored that we slowly need to sink into 
integrate in order to be again updated with evolution today. That's right. Otherwise, that part of me lives in the past, as you said before. So we walk around, but parts of us are not even here in the room. They're hanging out somewhere in space-time. And uh, we can't have a conversation. I think it would be really good to animate that in a movie or somehow in an animated <laughs> movie, because that's a very, very powerful illustration. And so, like, maybe you can expand a bit how could a ritual look like, so now that we... Uh, highlighted that part of the past and the split between body and mind. How would that look like in the collective? How could we translate this into collective rituals that help us to do that? <laughs> I wish I had the full answer that I'm longing for. Um, I think what I can tell so far, which I think is probably not very much at all, um, is that there's a power in in ritual. There's a power in um, in coming into the collective. We tell the story about who we are individually, who we are together. We sync up our nervous systems. There's actually a way that our nervous systems can start to find each other. Um, we can expand our range to be with aliveness when we're with each other. It's like, okay, I can hold more because I'm with more nervous systems. <laughs> a part of a larger nervous system that can hold more. Um, so I think that there's there's a lot of wisdom in what people have done, how people circle up, how people sing songs, how people dance, how people tell stories. And I think especially for where, again, I'm located in the Southern United States, we haven't actually had, I live on land that, um, was part of a plantation system, um, 37,000 acres of land here that was part of a plantation system and um, thousands of Africans are enslaved here in what is now kind of my rural neighborhood. There's never been that I know of a ritual on this land to grieve, to grieve what has happened, to grieve what people went through, to grieve what was lost when people enacted that on other people's bodies. There actually hasn't been the kind of, you know, again, I come from the Southern church, there hasn't been a wailing. We haven't wailed, <laughs> you know. In fact, it was more or less illegal for us to do that, and that's intentional. It was illegal for us to to wail, to throw our bodies on the ground, to become unruly in our grief, even though, you know, families are separated or people were, you know, um, violently killed. And we need that kind of wailing and witnessing, mm. I think. And I think in the witnessing to become a body that has enough expansiveness enough with actually to be with that level of pain to witness that I think is a transformative process. So I think we need both wailing and witnessing here. We need song that reconnects us. Um, these are the things I'm trying to think through a lot. Like what, how do we make this happen? How do we recruit people into doing this kind of experiment? Um, but we, we haven't done nearly enough grieving and collective resilience building, I think, um, for any of this to make sense. <laughs> mm, that's right. I love it. I would I would be part of it. Okay, great. You're invited, Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> like, I love it. I think, I totally think that, uh, that that's uh, very important. And I think that's exactly the kind of work we need on collect in collective fields to release the permafrost that I was talking about before. I think that's exactly one example. I mean, there are many examples, but that's one that is very important. It's it's interesting because one thing that I would love to uh, uh, see what you're saying to this, um, because in rituals, as, as, as I look at it is, if I look at you right now, 
you exist, of course, you exist in your body, but you also exist in my central nervous system. Yeah. So I have a you in me. Yeah. You are very close to me and vice versa. So when we talk about relating, we're actually describing the intra-existence that we exist in each other, but we are already deeply in each other anyway. And the only way not to have it that way is to contract, to absence, to dissociate, to do something to numb ourselves or, you know, go into high stress that we kind of, it's like a distortion in my perception of you. But in a way, you are anyway closer than close. And we can just try to prevent that. And trauma is is one process of basically, you know, when that gets overwhelmed, then we need to shut parts down. But so when we look at this in groups, so when I when we have large groups, so everybody is basically represented in everybody. If it's facilitated in the right way, we create a lot of intra intimacy. And that's actually like a way of witnessing is witnessing is becoming aware of that intra existence of everybody and everybody basically. And the more fluid the interior spaces can be, the more data connection is is running and the more relationality is being expressed. That's how we describe it, the, the words that we use. But I think that that's, and I would love to hear your take on that because for some people when, you know, when they hear, oh, I exist in you, that's at, at the beginning a bit foreign, not for you, but sometimes and I yeah. would like to hear your experience just to, to enrich that um, and then see how that relates to ritual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love that. I love to feel into what you're sharing and I, I can feel, I was, I mean, honestly, listening for the parts of me, they were like, okay, okay, but but like, <laughs> is that okay? And what part of me, how are you holding me there? You know, there's like, I want to control. I don't know if it's control, but I'm like, I, but how, how am I in there? Like, what do you feel? Um, and I think it's really honest. I mean, I think that is absolutely right about the relationship piece. It's like, you're already in there, especially if I allow myself to be present or in presence. It's like, oh, absolutely. You're in here, you're impacting, you're changing me um, <laughs> by being in this relationship. And it, it it just is so clarifying for me around how, yes, through trauma, through socialization, all these ways that we try to mitigate and control relationship. Okay, you can be in this much or you can be in only if you're positioned in this way. And what is it to allow presence to tell us how how this person lives in us instead of the story of who I must be in relationship to you trying to contort and control that? I think the thing around ritual is how do we keep inviting people? It's like, you know, when I hold group spaces, you know, we begin in a place and I'm like, okay, how do I keep carrying you? And the energy of us carrying us deeper, deeper, deeper into that place where we can arrive there and really witness mm-hmm. one another, really witness the relationship. And I think ritual, that is that is where you, it's not that you arrive there, that's the portal and then you arrive somewhere else. But how do we go from where we are now? That's the thing I'm really curious about. How do we keep going down into these levels and layers so that we can arrive there and do that without getting too hurt along the way. <laughs> I mm-hmm. think people are really cognizant of being hurt more. Maybe it's especially here or especially this time, but I, I find that to be the challenge of getting people into rituals. I'm afraid to trust. I'm afraid to connect. I'm afraid of what others might do if I let these contractions go. You know, Right. And maybe that's that's exactly what we need to address in order to go deeper, like that those defense mechanisms are invited to be there. Right. And then they yes. will be part of the ritual and right. <laughs> take them deeper. That's, yeah. that's, how you, that's how you spiral. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. 
And and I love it also because what you said, like with the oh, wait a minute, how do I exist in you? And and I believe the more we like through experience and maybe also through scientific research, we look at the intra-existence of everybody and everybody. I think that that's a highway to right relation because then it's absolutely clear that not a, not honoring and respecting human rights is a highway to one's own unwell-being. Because I can, I only, if I contract myself, I can do something to somebody that is not right that's action. Right. Because otherwise, if I want to be open in life, I cannot lie and stay open. Yes. I cannot do something painful and stay open. It doesn't work. And so in a way, like that intra-existence is the highway to to any kind of community building that is, you know, like that supports equality and flourishing for everybody and like really right relation, basically, that's connected to that universal source you spoke about. So that's lovely. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So I see our time. I don't want to take too much of your time. Is there anything that you would love to say that we didn't talk about that seems important? I mean, I could go on for hours because you <laughs> have so much to talk about. But for this conversation, and maybe then if you want, we can find another opportunity. Um, but is there anything for this conversation we didn't touch on that's important to you? Oh, yeah. I think, uh, you know, my hope is this will be the first conversation of many. I've been deeply inspired by your work. I'm so grateful for it and, and really I'm glad to be invited here to be a part of this conference. So um, I can feel complete knowing that this is an ongoing conversation and mm. I'm grateful. Mm, I loved it. I loved it. I would love to continue in, in multiple ways. I have already some ideas. So uh, I would love that too. I am honored that you are here and that we had, I feel a lot of resonance and I love the wakefulness and the precision. I love precision, you know, because I often say precision is love. Yes. And uh, being precise is loving. Yes. And uh, and so I love how precise you relate to, precisely how you relate to things, uh, like aspects of life and processes. That's, that's really beautiful. Uh, and the wakefulness that shines through that. So thank you for thank uh, you expressing so all of this. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That really touches me. Visit CollectorTraumaSummit.com to listen to more talks like this one and to sign up and be the first to know when the next Collector Trauma Summit is announced. Thanks for listening to Point of Relation with Thomas Hoover. Stay connected by visiting our website, pointofrelationpodcast.com, and by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review, and share about us with your community on social media. Thank you. We appreciate your support.